the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. This is a bonus episode that is something a little different from other episodes I've done, but I had the opportunity to talk to legendary country musician and acclaimed author Kinky Friedman, and I jumped at it. People may remember his run for governor in Texas as an independent in 2006, but Kinky wasn't in the mood to talk about that. Instead, we've talked about the politics of his youth in the 50s and 60s, his time in the Peace Corps in Borneo, both his time as a songwriter and novelist, his friendship with both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, and now his passion for running the Echo Hill Ranch in the Texas Hill Country, a nonprofit ranch for the children of those who served in the military or first responders who fallen in the line of duty. And Kinky even plays a song to close this episode, a song that Nelson Mandela frequently played in his prison cell in South Africa, a story Kinky tells. Again, this is a little different, but so is Kinky Friedman, and I think you'll be glad you listened. Kinky Friedman, can you tell me how you grew up? Slowly and meticulously. Pretty much of a very fun childhood. As my sister likes to say, uh, childhood is the worst possible preparation for life. People may have heard of the Texas Hill Country, but can you paint a picture of the Hill Country as you know it? What should people know about it that haven't had the privilege to spend uh, the time there that you have? Well, it's changed a lot because uh, it's being flooded with people, of course. Most of them, most of the people coming to Texas are, are the wrong ones. That's unfortunate. The town of Austin, would very much, which was a, a, a beauty, now uh, wants to be L.A. if it can. It's trying real hard. What is the best of the Texas Hill Country? Well, at its best, it's a little green valley surrounded by uh, gentle rolling hills. It's uh, managed to be kind of a, a harbor or a haven for a lot of people, I think. And I, well, it, it used to be, they never liked to say hill country because they thought it was too yokel, wasn't cool. And now, very quickly, in a matter of a decade or two, it seems, the words hill country are put into everything that was in a million miles from here. You know, gateway to the hill country, hill country motors, whatever it is. Whatever your business is, you call it hill country. The heart of Texas is where we're at right now. That is uh, close to San Antonio, which stays true true to its school more. Austin is just, and Houston and Dallas. I mean, as Molly Ivins uh, used to say, Dallas is the town that roots for Goliath to beat David. I grew up pretty much in uh, Houston and Austin. Then we came up here, my folks uh, bought this ranch, Echo Hill, and turned it into a camp for kids, which for the first time in a long time is uh, coming back into action for uh, Gold Star kids and uh, first first responder kids. Yeah, that's what it is. Animal Rescue, we ran for many years, but and we adopted thousands and thousands of dogs. But we were still isolated enough to hurt us there because we didn't get enough uh, traffic people that uh, could adopt the dogs. So we were too isolated. Did you grow up in a political family? Was politics front and center for the Freedmans? Yeah, I was. Uh, I grew up a Democrat, and but uh, I wisened up uh, when I when I ran for governor. Texas is a place where everybody will tell you they're a libertarian. You can't meet somebody who's not a libertarian or an independent. But when it comes time to, to vote, that's when the uh, Crips and the Bloods come out and get you. Am I right that as a young kinky, you had somehow developed a lot of emotional investment in the Adlai Stevenson presidential campaign? <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. 
I had. I mean, I started, of course, with my parents, who were very big. I mean, if everybody was like Adlai Stevenson, this would be a wonderful world. What captured your interest about him? We're talking presidential campaigns in the 50s at this point. But what what appealed to you about what's, who Stevenson was, what he had to say? I have one of the uh, things that his inner circle used to wear, the, uh, the silver shoe with a hole in it pin that I got very attached to. I still have the thing. Stevenson was a, a statesman. He was a man of real character. I've heard you say before that there aren't any politicians left that inspire people. Uh, but in an earlier time, again, other than an Adlai Stevenson, what leaders inspired you? Who spoke to you? Well, I guess Adlai was the first. Well, then, then we move into uh, a little later down the line to Ann Richards and Molly Ivins and Barbara Jordan, all of whom had the ability to inspire. Three Texans. Yeah, yeah. And Jordan was very interesting. She wrote a, a, a speech for the Democratic Convention in New York. God knows what year. Uh, you probably know that. I think 76. I think that would have been the Carter Convention. Yeah, that, that was, uh, yeah. Uh, you may know the story of, uh, it's featured in uh, my political book, um, You Can Lead a Politician to Water, But You Can't Make Him Think. Barbara Jordan had written a, a speech for, she was the keynote speaker. And uh, Robert Strauss and the other big shot Democrats read it the night before, and it was too late to change it, but they were horrified with how arrogant and elitist, aggrandizing the speech was. So they could not change it, and John Glenn was being eaten alive on, nobody was listening to him speaking. So she went up on stage, and the first sentence, which was uh, taken from the Passover service of the Jews, which was, why is this convention different from all other conventions, basically, was this? And she says, the answer is, because I, Barbara Jordan, am giving the keynote address. And the crowd just went apeshit. They had to play the Eyes of Texas about 26 times, and everybody was marching around. I mean, everybody got it, or everybody, that meant something to everybody, except the Democratic leadership. And what about President Kennedy? That would seem like he would have been in the wheelhouse for your formative yeah. uh, times. Did you, I know you, we'll talk in a moment, I'll ask you about the, the Peace Corps, And uh, but did you connect with President Kennedy deeply as a political figure at the time, or was it not quite that romantic? No, I did. Whatever his uh, flaws, and he sure had them, there was an insp inspirational guy. Bobby was too. And I, I guess life was simpler then, you might say. But I, I certainly lost my interest in politics as, as we moved on down the line. And I felt that country music, if I had to pick one, country music is more significant. And of course, today, uh, country music is terrible. Country music fans don't even recognize it anymore. What is significant usually loses. The crowd usually picks Barabbas. Uh, that almost always happens. And Barabbas was not evil. He was just mediocre. So if uh, Rick Perry were to run against Jesus Christ, Rick Perry would win. Well, I'm very fond of Jesus, and I'm very fond of Moses. And I consider them uh, two good Jewish boys who got in a little trouble with the government. Well, can you talk a bit more about what, what inspired you about President Kennedy, you know, back to the, that early 60s era uh, before things, as you say, maybe got a little more complicated? Well, I mean, the system was always corrupt. That's nothing new. But he was a fresh face kind of one little trivial point that I've always found interesting since I'm a Peace Corps guy, having served two years in the jungle in Borneo, probably no accident that the Peace Corps was founded by President Kennedy on the same day as the uh, Green Berets. I found the Peace Corps to be uh, pretty damned interesting. I got this tattoo in the Peace Corps, 
but that's pig fat nailed under the skin using real nails and a little hammer that these jungle women who had these giant earrings that stretched their ears down, they gave me that in the Ulu, which is the deep jungle. Most of it's been destroyed by Japanese logging companies by now. The Peace Corps, a lot of it was teaching. I taught farming for some reason. I've never expressed any interest. Actually, farming puts me into a diabetic coma. It's very boring to me. For over 1,000 years, they've farmed successfully, and here comes Kinky and all the other college graduates to teach them how to screw things up. The people there had some cool things they did. The Punan tribe were nomads. They had kind of an ethical code that we seem to have lost somewhere, and that is they will not shoot, use poison darts, big, long dart guns, several of which I still have. They believe that it's only fair to let the animals see you before you shoot, which is a real beautiful idea if you've got to be a hunter and you've got to, you're doing it for the right reasons, to feed your family or whatever. If, if an animal is drinking from a river and looking off into the sunset, something they, they wouldn't shoot. It's only fair to, to warn him. Unfortunately, uh, I guess it's a combination of, of Japanese logging companies. And what happens just the, the way the, the system works is they take a smart kid and they send the kid from Borneo to London. And of course, the kid comes back to Borneo telling everybody how stupid they are and how backwards, out of fashion they are. So in that way, a whole village can be wiped out, not by cholera or, or anything like that or enemy tribe. And it's sad because, like, as long as you keep drinking, if you throw up, you know, right on the chief's head, they like you, they love you. But if you say, no, that's that's it, too, that's it for me, you'll never get it. They don't respect you at all. Very, very interesting, uh, interesting place. Did you ever go back after you, after you left from your Peace Corps tour? No, because I kept waiting until I was completely happy. I wanted to be happy happy enough to, because that kind of defines you if you go back and, and there's a few people who remember you and whatever. I never was happy, and that's kind of a good thing. Uh, I fight happiness at every turn, particularly as a songwriter. If you're happy, you can forget it. You'll never be, you'll never have the talent. Of course, a lot of it's God-given talent. Van Gogh had it. Kafka had it. All kinds of people had it, and they were all miserable as hell. I mean, they were legitimately very, very sad, melancholy people. You will not find uh, a happy, well-adjusted person that can write. Yeah, so Borneo, obviously very, very influential experience. Another place that was very influential for you uh, was Austin, University of Texas. What is there to say? I know uh, your, your father was a, I've heard him described as a legendary psychology professor at UT, Tom, Dr. Tom Friedman, I think, Dr. Thomas Friedman. What should people know about your, about your father? Uh, ed Psych, educational psychology. Uh, Bob Dylan, when I was on Rolling Thunder Review, uh, so that'd be 76. We, we threw a party for Bob and for the Rolling Thunder uh, at our house in Northwest Austin. It's a nice suburban area, my, my, my folks did. So at that party, we decided, we talked to Bob about having lunch the next day on campus. So we agreed we would meet in my dad's office. By the time we got there, this was supposed to be a secret. It's not, not a secret, but low, very low profile. But the hallways were thronged with kids which prompted the dean, who was a rather old-fashioned guy. Uh, most deans are, I guess. Uh, anyway, this dean went across the hall, worked his way through the crowd, and he said, uh, Tom, to my dad, he said, what is going on? What's happening? My dad said, well, Bob Dylan is here. 
And uh, the dean said, is he one of our students? Tom said, no, he's not one of our students. <laughs> and uh, dad was also the first professor. He, I don't think he had tenure at that time either, who led a uh, civil rights march down the drag, the main thoroughfare there. There's a funny story about the, the banker. Tom's banker was kind of an old Texas type, but Tom liked the guy and he, he loved Tom. And the guy could not believe it. He said, do you see what I'm seeing? He said, there's Tom Friedman leading this. So this was the first civil rights march they'd ever seen. And for a professor to be in one, to tantamount to really putting his job on the line. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But what was the influence of the UT campus on you? You know, as a student there, we're talking, what, early, mid-60s? I would, I guess, before the, the protest movement and the peak of the activism that we associate, you know, with the late 60s and early 70s. But, but what was your time uh, like on the UT campus as a student? I, I slept through most of it, like a bad dream, you know, and uh, so I don't really... Well, can you talk about the formation of, of your band? Uh, you what, 1973? Is that what we're talking about? At some point, you realize that country music was a higher calling. And shortly thereafter, I assume uh, your, your band is formed. Yeah, I thought that um, Hank Williams was probably more important than all the politicians in the world. So I was very much like uh, Mark Twain or Will Rogers, who the enemy really was politicians. Well, like Mark Twain, for instance, who, who loved cats. Yeah, she said something like, if I meet a man who loves cats, he is my friend without further introduction. Animals are very close to me. A technique, I guess, which is to always have a silent witness when I'm writing a song or a book. That's who you write it for. So I'm writing this for Zach, this song. And I'm so moved by commentary and that he would take the time to research this. And The band name, Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys, it sounds whimsical, you know, sitting here today in 2021. But in the 60s and 70s, it was still very common for Jewish people who wanted to make it in the public eye to downplay their heritage, change their name. But you went in the other direction, which I think could be viewed as a pretty courageous move, especially for someone breaking into, into country and Western music. Well, I, I wasn't sure. When we first got to Nashville, uh, Billy Swan, who wrote uh, Lover, Please, Please Come Back, and uh, I Can Help, which was an international smash. And Billy helped put the band together. He knew everybody in town in Nashville. The Nashville had loaded with charm, great town. Now it's a very corporate whorehouse. What was the question? It was somewhat courageous to uh, ha actually have a, a band name, Kinky Freeman and the Texas Jew Boys, where a lot of other Jewish entertainers were changing their name and running as far away as they could from a Jewish identity. That's absolutely right. Uh, also, the band was, was not for shock value. The band was pretty, pretty good musicians. And uh, the songs, well, you know, People can judge that, but uh, and I might say that it's shocking how much material I got from my father and my mother. My mother was pretty, pretty cool. My mother's the one who had the little sign on her desk here at the ranch, which said, courtesy is owed, respect is earned, love is given. That's a good one. Let me, let me see if I can hold on to this. It's kind of getting a little deep here. In 1973, we recorded the first record, Sold American. Some years after, after that, I did a book tour of uh, South Africa and met Tokyo Seshwale, who was uh, Mandela's right-hand man. And uh, Tokyo was in, in the cell next to Mandela on Robben Island. 
Mandela served more than 30 years in prison, the most famous prisoner in the world. Tokyo told me, Kinky, you do know that uh, Nelson is a very big fan of yours, Mandela. He's a very big fan of yours. I said, oh, man, that's terrific. I said, which, which book is it that he likes? And he said, it's not the books at all. It's the music. Oh, well, then he said, he used to play this, Sold American, a couple of times. I would hear him play it a couple of times. And the, for some reason, they let him have this late night radio, pirate radio show. They damn near killed him many times. Maybe they thought this would settle the prisoners at, at night or something. He did run the, the, the radio show. Then he stumbled on Ride'em Jew Boy. And uh, Tokyo says, and he never let go. He would play that song repeatedly. Sometimes he'd play it multiple times the same night. When we recorded in 73, the last place I thought you would find this record, I was concerned. We all were about the stores, record stores. And in 73, we were, we were worried about it not getting airplay. But uh, the last place I thought you might find this record would be in the hands of Nelson Mandela in prison. Tokyo said, don't get a swelled head about this, Kinky, because uh, you are not Mandela's favorite singer. That was Dolly Parton. Ride'em Jew Boy was written in the jungle in Borneo. It was there that I started realizing that the further you get from your subject matter, instead of the, the, the more vague it is, the more clear it becomes. So if you're describing New York, and you're I'm, like I've done this, I've been in Hawaii writing a mystery set in New York, and that was a good one. At any rate, on the Mandela thing, well, I never met Mandela. My theory is that, uh, what the hell was her first name? Helen, Helen Susman. You familiar with that name? She was in the uh, National Congress, is that right? Yeah. Well, she was not only in, in it, but she was the only woman in it, the only Jew in it, and the only person in the apartheid government who visited Mandela regularly in prison. And she smuggled tape cassettes into him. That's my theory. That's how I think she got, he got Rodham Jew Boy. Well, what about the theory on why it, it spoke to him so deeply? Well, that's a, that's the measure of the man. Mandela was able to see the the Holocaust was not his battle. Mandela, something struck a chord there because it wasn't really his battle. Personally, you talk about charisma and inspiration. He's he's got it behind a good cause. Many of your early songs did have this social or political underpinning, referencing your time in Borneo. Others taking on racism, anti-Semitism, gun violence. I mean, is it fair to say that in a lot of ways you were a political songwriter? Long enough to stunt my career, yeah. Uh, Bob was better at it, at handling the protests that he, I don't think he really believed in. But not that he needed to. I mean, it's, it is the fact that uh, other people may be inspired by something that, uh, in other words, you, you, you never know what's going to hit with a song. You got your great masterpiece, you know, Ride'em Jew Boy, and the crowd finds it a little ho-hum. Uh, they're not sure. They're looking over their shoulder. Is it anti-Semitic? Is it, uh, what do we do with the word Jew boy? Meanwhile, the Christians get it. A good Christian understands that song. Another song that I think has a political sentiment is uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, which you've described as the first or the only pro-choice country song. That's uh, right. That's can, right. <laughs> can, you, can you give some context to, to where that where that song, song comes from? I think it's moving up in the ranks is one of the best things I ever wrote. I played this song for an audience that had some young kids in it, like about 10 years old. And one of them came up to me afterwards and said, that uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, he said, has one line in it that tells the whole story. And that is, he left her just a blanket of snow upon the farm. 
and that don't keep your conscience very warm. That was a line that he said really hooked him. I showed about uh, a large group of kids, 40 or 50 kids, a uh, pizza cover. Here they were volunteering to help us get the ranch ready. I said, you see this? Paul Newman pizza, 100% charity. That's what I want to do. I don't want to be a guy with $87 million in my pocket calling it charity. So, I mean, we're going to try to do it. And, and I think we'll come damn close to, to doing it. And that's when I met that guy, Hot Water Heaters, behind the box. This is about a week ago or so. And I came up to him and said, uh, Seth, I just want to thank you very much for helping us. Thanks for coming down and helping, helping us with this. And he says, I'm doing it for Jesus. And I said, well, I'm doing it for Moses. <laughs> and it's a good thing I didn't hammer my head into the uh, heater there. And now some of the jokes, I think uh, it was a crazy idea to think you could tell jokes and then sing Rapid City, South Dakota. I mean, you can do it, but it came a little late in the game. And if you write a funny song, you're dead. And another phase of your career, which ultimately resulted in an invitation to the White House, which we'll talk about, is your time as an author, most prominently of 20-plus critically acclaimed detective novels, the main character of each being a Jewish cowboy detective named Kinky Friedman. Can you talk about that phase of your career? In my mysteries, there's 22 of them. There is a point in the mystery that particularly a, a novice will think that he, he is, that Kinky, the character, is um, a hick or is not, not uh, Sherlock Holmes. You know, he's and then somewhere in the course of the book, they begin to realize that, hey, this detective is 10 steps ahead of me, actually, when I was thinking I was ahead of him. And all you have to do to dislike a mystery writing is to attend a mystery writer's convention where everybody is wearing this, their hats at jointing angles, smoking a meerschaum pipe. But I've enjoyed very much writing until the, the loss of the, uh, the typewriter. For some reason, I'm just sloth on my part, I guess, but I, I don't have the internet. Typewriter is just uh, gone. Ribbons dry up and whatever. That, I, that ended my pen pal relationship with uh, both W and Bill Clinton. Well, yeah, I mean, so famously, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, and, and I guess George W. Bush, but Bill Clinton was a big, big fan of your detective novels. I think at times you've been described as one of his favorite authors. What is your read on Bill Clinton? What, what do you know about Bill Clinton after spending some time around him that the rest of us don't? He's a very discerning man. <laughs> well, clearly. I'll tell you that. As it relates to literary preference. Yeah, yes, definitely. Uh, w is a very funny guy. I'd say funny to the point almost a quirky and he never gets credit for it. Television is not his strongest suit. Uh, that kind of tells me something good about the man. Bill, I went to a state dinner there or something, and my dad was still around. You know, my father was still a Democrat. He wouldn't uh, cross the street to meet W, as good a guy as he was, but he would for Bill Clinton. And Bill just had it, man. He just My father just had a heart attack uh, the month before. And Bill had his arm draped around my dad's shoulders like he was at some Arkansas barbecue, you know, like he's his mm -hmm. oldest pal. And a number of people had commented that I should not be wearing a cowboy hat in there. This was a kind of formal deal at the White House. Oh, and it started with the postman bringing me a letter. And, and uh, I said, well, who the, who's this from? And he said, it's a, look, it's, it's a White Horse Saloon in Nashville, which was country music type of thing, line dancing sort of stuff almost destroyed country music back then. And a woman that I love very much was a very good line dancer. She was Miss Texas 1987. That was love. You know, I really have loved uh, a lot of people in my life. I consider myself a lucky man. 
uh, because I still do, but not enough to be happy about it. But you were getting some sideways looks from wearing the cowboy hat in the White House. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I was looking for my name place. And then, uh, then the lady took me over to it. And out of a couple hundred people, it says uh, Kinky Friedman, Bill Clinton, right, right next to me. First thing he said to me was, tell me about uh, what you know about Steve Goodman, the guy who wrote City of New Orleans. There was a hospital near there in Chicago on the south side, I believe, uh, Michael Reese Hospital. It was there forever. And I'm sure it's gone now. But, uh, you know, the neighborhood needed a, another Denny's. Michael Reese Hospital, within the same short period of time, there were six Jew boys, all born within this short, narrow frame. And they were all in the same wing of the same hospital. Michael Reese was uh, Steve Goodman was born. Mike, Michael Blimfield, Warren Zevon, Chinga Chavin, Shel Silverstein, and Kinky Friedman. And I am the uh, only one who hasn't fallen off my perch yet. Country music, it helps to have a perfectly timed country music death. Otherwise, no matter how great you are, they'll forget you quickly, probably. You want to talk about the Echo Hill Ranch? Uh, my sister and I, Marcy, we become philanthropists quite by accident. Well, maybe that's not true. We, well, my folks had a camp here for maybe 60 years. For about another 10, my brother and his wife ran the place. You know, like an old amusement park that's dilapidated and all that. That's what the ranch looked like. I'm the Gandhi-like uh, figure that operates here. My sister put the thing together. She would be the camp director. We got the idea that there's almost nothing for kids. Gold Star, the Gold Star group is mostly oriented to, to family groups, and what's left of them. Or adults, maybe PTSD kind of stuff, uh, which is all worthy causes, but they seem to be covered. I mean, it's never completely covered, of course not, but I think the kids may get lost in the shuffle. We wanted to, to open this up and see if who was interested, and we found Black Rifle Coffee, Green Beret Foundation, Audie Murphy Society, a whole bunch of these people, and, and the Gold Star kids. And then we expanded to have to have first responders kids, cops, firefighters, people that really should deserve a tribute in general, rarely get it. We want to give these kids a great, fun experience. So I certainly encourage people to go to echohill.org, which offers a summer camp experience at a working ranch in the Texas Hill Country to children of those whose parents served in the military or as first responders who fallen in the line of duty. Please visit echohill.org, consider a tax-deductible donation. And for Kinky's music, concert, DVDs, books, audiobooks, kinkyfriedman.com is the place to go. And as we close, Kinky told the story earlier of Nelson Mandela playing the Kinky Friedman song, Ride Em Jew Boy, in his prison cell in South Africa. Kinky has offered to play that very song to close us out today. Uh, Kinky, I'll turn it over to you. Well, Zach, I'll see you down the highway. Thank you, sir. May the Lord take a liking to you, brother. This thing is, uh, either this is out of key or I'm out of key. Couldn't be me. Ride, ride them, Jew boy. Ride them all around the old corral. with you, boy, if I got to ride six million miles, and now the smoke from camps arising, 
the helpless creatures on their way. Hey, old pal, ain't it surprising how far you can go before you stay? And don't you let the morning blind you when on your sleeve you wore the yellow star old memories still live behind you can't you see by your outfit who you are how long will you be driven relentless around the world the blood in the rhythm of the soul Wild ponies all Your dreams were broken Rounded up and made to move along The loneliness Which can't be spoken Just swings a rope and rides inside a song And dead limbs play with ringless fingers A melody which burns you deep inside Oh, how the song becomes the singer May peace be ever with you as you ride How long will you be driven relentless round the world blood in the rhythm of the soul in the wind no candles glowing reminds you that today you are a child the road ahead forever rolling and anything worth crying can be smiled so ride, ride them, G-Boy, ride them all around the old corral, I, I'm with you, boy, if I got to ride six million Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.